The Olympic Channel podcast is brought to you by Bridgestone, worldwide Olympic partner and founding partner of the Olympic Channel, inspiring you to chase your dream. I'm Ed Knowles, and this is the Olympic Channel podcast. Olympic Channel podcast. Just a month before she turned eight years old, Scout Bassett left the Chinese orphanage she called home. On she went to a small town in North Michigan with her new family. Even her new life was hard. She had a prosthetic after a chemical fire mangled her right leg. But Scout fought against the odds to become a sprinter and a long jumper at Rio 2016, representing the USA. She's primed for the new Tokyo 2020 dates as well. She says her dream is just delayed. I spoke to Scout from her home where she's locked down to learn how to truly face up to adversity. Olympic Channel Podcast. Scout Bassett, how are you? Hey, I'm fantastic, doing well uh, in spite of all things and um, you know, just uh, continuing to figure out how to go forward just like everybody else. Uh, I wanted to ask you, what is your very first memory? My first memory is of just such despair of our everyday life, our everyday routine. Um, just so much pain uh, during that time. And, you know, not to get super dark, but those are really the first memories that I have of my childhood was in that environment, in that place of having no hope of about our life, of a future, of ever even making it out. Um, that was pretty much every day growing up in this orphanage. Wow. I mean, the the records from the orphanage says that you arrived as an 18-month-old baby with a severely mangled right leg resulting from a, a, a chemical fire. Um, and then one month before your eighth birthday, uh, and you're taken from that, from that orphanage in Nanjing, China. And I read that you'd never even heard of America. The day that I left, I just a range of emotions from just being terrified and fear to being heartbroken and devastated. I think most people think that you know, you're being taken out of this horrific situation and environment and you're getting to come to America, you know, and it's the dream and that you should be happy and excited. But when I left, I had no idea what was happening to me. And those kids in the orphanage, that was all I had ever known. That was the only home I had ever known. And so to leave the grounds of that place for the first time in my life was terrifying. I mean, I had never left that orphanage once in the, all the years that I lived there. So to get out of that environment and was of such unknown is just very, very fearful, you know, and I'm in a car and on a train and on a plane for the first time. And I have no ability to even conceptualize these things or another world because I've never seen it or experienced it or even um, we had no access to media. So I never knew um, of people that were not Asian. <laughs> and so my parents are Caucasian. 
And just to be taken away like that, I was like, I feel like I'm being abducted by aliens. <laughs> and um, it was just a, um, a nauseating experience, but I can't even put it, um, into words the devastation that I felt for so long and how heartbroken I was because I didn't know that when I left China that I wasn't coming back, you know, and I think a part of me realized that in doing so, I was leaving behind my identity, my culture, like who I am. Um, a part of me would be lost, you know, being ripped out from that environment. So it was um, a traumatizing in itself, just the process of coming to America. Um, from going from China to a tiny little town in, in Michigan is, is, is difficult. I mean, what were the struggles as you settled into life in America? Well, as uh, one can imagine, I'm an outsider now. So I come to this town of 1,600 people, all Caucasian, the only person with a disability in the whole county. And so not only do I look different ethnically from everybody else, um, most of those people who have never met or seen a Chinese person or an Asian person to having this very visible disability that is also foreign and unknown to most people. And so I think just the layers of struggle and the barriers that made me different than everybody else was really challenging and not speaking the language. Um, obviously, I have different cultural you know, characteristics and that was very difficult for me, especially you know, integrating myself into school was very challenging because, you know, as we know, uh, when kids are young, they're not the most open-minded, accepting, understanding um, at that age or mature. And, and so um, that was really, I think, the hardest part for me was, you know, not just learning the language and learning to read and write, but just fitting in and not just because I was ethnically different, but I had a disability where I think a lot of times people were just afraid, you know, it was like I was that girl that was like considered a freak, you know, um, and it wasn't cool to like be friends with somebody that had a prosthetic or, or an amputee. And so I think that was probably the hardest part was just socially connecting with the other kids and knowing you know, but I knew from a young age when I came here that my life was going to be a very challenging path, that things would always be very difficult. And um, I think that was something that I, I recognized very quickly when, you know, you're left out of activities or social thing gatherings or, you know, there's somebody's having a birthday party and, and you find out about it at school and you weren't invited. And there's just all these things that I, I realized that I was very different and that weren't necessarily acceptable at that time or just considered okay. But I also saw an opportunity in that of those challenges of, you know, if you are lucky enough to be born or to be different, then don't change. Never change yourself. 
in that way. And I just always stayed true to that, even as a young girl, even despite all these struggles, was just to be myself. And I think came, with that came a lot of challenges of accepting this identity. And it's not to say that it was easy um, because it wasn't. You know, you can talk about um, being yourself and but sometimes there's a price for being yourself. You know, there's um, things that are going to be difficult um, because of that. And so I think I had a lot of struggles growing up with really accepting all that I am and of my story. And I grew up with a lot of shame and embarrassment of the fact that I was different and that I would never really quite fit in or, or be the norm or and um, that was very, very difficult as a young girl to really accept. Sports was always part of Scout's life, but her life really did change the day that she was fitted with a carbon fibre running blade. I received my first running blade when I was 14 years old. I had never, uh, up to that point, I had never had a sports prosthetic. I didn't even know it was a thing. Uh, I had done sports my whole life on my everyday, you know, basic walking leg, nothing fancy. And when the first time I saw one of these running blades, I didn't have that thought of like, oh, that's so cool or it looks badass or anything like that. <laughs> More like, okay, that's kind of ugly. And I think part of that was because of sort of how our society portrays um, women that have disabilities. You know, up until then, if I ever saw somebody with a disability in mainstream media, it was primarily men that were featured, rarely ever women. And so when I saw those things, I attributed it to something that like, well, that's what guys do, you know, or that's what the guys want or that's and, you know, if you look at one of these uh, running blades, it's not very they're not particularly feminine looking, you know, it's um it's very masculine in a lot of ways. It's made of carbon fiber and the shape is, you know, uh, um, a somewhat uh, masculine look to it. And so I just and, and also part of it was I just didn't see girls running. And so um, I had never seen that. And when my prosthetist, which is like the clinical term for somebody who makes these prosthetics, told me um, about running and he said, I'm going to get you to run. And, you know, he had seen that I was always athletic and loved sports and um, he was really the one that birthed this idea of of being a runner with one of these blades. And I the first time I ever ran with it in a race, um, it was a track and field meet in Florida. And I had the meltdown of all meltdowns. And I share this story because it has like a really important meaning. But yeah, the whole ugly cry, you know, the you're just wailing so much you can't get a single word out and you look just you look and sound ridiculous and i had one of those meltdowns because he had bought me this outfit to run in this track race and it was a pair of shorts and like um a sports bra slash tank and it wasn't the top that bothered me but i saw the bottoms and i was like oh hold up there is no way like if i wear these shorts 
my prosthetic will be fully exposed. And up until then, I had always worn a cosmetic cover over my prosthetic. Um, you know, this skin tone foam cover to make it look like an anatomical limb. And I look back at the photos or just at that time in my life and I'm like, I don't know who I was fooling because it definitely didn't look like my other leg. <laughs> it wasn't the same shade of a skin tone or anything. But anyways, that was sort of my security, my blanket, right? And or if I had to wear like if I had to look like a girl, I had I wore um you know, long dresses or a long skirt and wore pants, even doing like sports, softball and soccer, things that would cover it up. And I realized that with one of these carbon fiber running blades, the shape of it, there's no way you can put a cosmetic cover to make it look like an anatomical limb. And I just had this massive fear of having to be seen for the first time at 14 like to show the world to step out onto that track and be totally exposed. And that was why I just had this massive meltdown. And I'm so thankful for, for Stan because, you know, after I went through, had my whole episode, he was like, well, we're not leaving this track meet until you run the 60 meters. He's like, if I have to tell the race director to be here all day, I will. And so like, the longer you hold us up, the longer you, you have to be here, and um, it was like just I'm so thankful that he sort of pushed me out um, in that way because I didn't want to disappoint him or anybody else. And he had spent all this effort making this life. So I got out there, ran. And it's funny how when you find something that gives you such a lift, uh, a high, so to speak, um, a freedom that you've never felt, you forget about everything else like you you're not even thinking about what people are thinking or are they laughing are they staring like what are they saying like i didn't even think about that at all when i ran and it was such a powerful and transformational moment in my life not only did i realize how much i loved running and i wanted to hold on to this feeling that i had because up until then i think i had felt the weight of such heavy chains of being told no, of all the denials, of being left out, being on the sidelines, the girl that didn't get to play. And when I ran, I just felt like those chains were lifted. I forgot that I was disabled. I forgot that I was an amputee. Um, but more importantly, from that moment after I ran that race, I by the way, I came in last place, but that was not the significant thing. <laughs> it was that I, I vowed to myself after that day, that I'm never going to be embarrassed of who I am, of what I look like, of where I come from, or of my story, you know, most of which I could have never changed. And so it was just a really powerful moment to just own and accept who I am and that we should all be proud and we should never carry these chains or embarrassment of shame of, of our story or what we look like and or just who we are and so that was um probably one of the most powerful moments of my life i've been asked that quite a bit like how at such a young age were you able to have such maturity or perspective 
And I, I don't really know where that comes from other than the fact that I had gone through so many challenges and so much hardship and struggle and emotions and experiences that most people never go through in their life. And in order to survive, to overcome, to persevere, you just had to develop this will, you know, this perspective, this determination. And, um, you know, I, I really attribute all the struggles, everything that's happened in my life, even the darkest of seasons um, as things that have really helped me to grow, um, to gain such courage and strength. And, you know, I've really learned to embrace those things about my story, um, not to suppress it or to just leave it in the past. But, you know, I sort of see that as my power. Because I'm like, Scout, if you have been able to overcome all of these obstacles, um, things that are so unthinkable on your journey, there's nothing that you cannot rise above. There's no challenge that you can't conquer. And everything else in comparison seems relatively easy, to be honest, compared to those, those hardships. And so um, I really attribute that as sort of giving me the perspective that I have, um, even as a young child and just, I mean, I, I didn't realize then how different and weird I was. Like I was reading 800 page, like political biographies by fifth grade and just like the encyclopedia. And I studied the dictionary and I was swinging spelling bees, even though I didn't know English in second, you know, and um, I didn't think anything of it at that time. But now in hindsight, I'm like, really was that weird dorky kid <laughs> now I'm like I might understand why I didn't have so many friends then <laughs> so you go from being in last place in Florida ugly cry to uh UCLA, UCLA full scholarship um can you explain how you got uh picked up by the USA Paralympic team and how you ended up at UCLA I grew up in the kind of place where People don't really have like massive big dreams. The kind of town, small town where you don't really ever leave. Um, people, uh, you know, you marry the first person that you stare at longer than like six seconds, you know, and you have a baby right out of high school. And it's just like people don't really have like careers or, or whatnot. And I just kind of sort of saw this pattern, right, growing up of, you know, it's a cyclical generational thing and everybody stays and nobody really leaves. And um, I just felt like I was destined for so much more than that. I didn't know how I was going to get out because my dad never went to college. My mom was a stay at home mom. So education was not higher education wasn't something that was really preached or emphasized in our home. Like we didn't have conversations at the dinner table of like, are you gonna go to college? What colleges are you looking at? How are your grades? Have you taken, you know, the standardized testing? I didn't, we didn't have that at all, you know? And so, but I just always felt, I'm like, I just feel like I'm destined for so much more than this town. And so, in uh, high school, you know, I was a good student and high school, my guidance counselor had asked me if I was considered going to college. And then I was like, I don't know, not sure, you know, and 
And um, so, you know, she's like, Scout, you need to get out of here. Like, you are destined for so much more than this place. And um, I I would say as a rather savage move uh, to my parents or a letter you move to my parents, um, (laughs) I said, okay, I'm going to go to college, but I'm not going to apply to a single school in the Midwest or like middle America. And I would only apply to schools on the East Coast or West Coast because I said, I want to get so far away from here that nobody can come visit me within like a day's drive. (laughs) And so that's kind of what I decided to do. And I only applied to schools on, you know, the coasts of America, super far away from home. And um, one of the schools was UCLA, and I earned um, a presidential scholarship at UCLA, had to go through all these interviews and visits to campus and and whatnot, and um, I was awarded that scholarship. And so, and of course, the first time I came to LA, I was just like wide-eyed, like coming from this small town. LA was just like the stuff of movies, right? palm trees and just the beach and sunshine. I am from like Northern Michigan, which is like winter eight months of the year, you know, (laughs) six to eight months of the year. So the idea of seeing the beach and sunshine and palm trees and UCLA is right in the middle of Beverly Hills. And it was just like, of course, why wouldn't I come to school here, you know? And um, so, but I'll admit the first year was really hard. I think I underestimated what a different world L.A. was compared to where I had come from. And when you go to a school like UCLA, nobody's like holding your hand and navigating you through the college life or the city or anything like that. I felt very like, a you know, a, a fish that was like fed to the sharks kind of. And so the first year was tough, but thankfully my my sophomore year. I was recruited by the high performance director at U.S. Paralympics. And I should back up and say that up to this point, I had been running like marathons and half marathons and doing triathlons, so endurance sports. And I was doing it for fun because I enjoyed it and I loved it, but not, you know, to compete or anything. It obviously, those were not Paralympic sports at the time. And she had told me about track and basically had asked and begged if I would come try out for uh, or come to this development camp for track and field. And at that time, and and still to this day, there's a relatively low percentage of women doing Paralympics. And so she was, you know, recruiting um, more women in the sport and the movement. And um, I was like, you know, I'm really enjoying this endurance sports thing. I had gone to um, the triathlon world championships and won three um, medals at the world championships. And so I was like, I'm I'm kind of enjoying this. I don't know if I'm ready to leave. And she just, then she told me about the Paralympics and how it was like the Super Bowl for people that had permanent physical disabilities. And, you know, the world championships was one thing, but the Paralympics, was a whole different stage. And I think as a uh, um, as an athlete that had always wanted to compete at that highest level and be amongst the best of the best, it really intrigued me. And so um, that's how I got sucked in. 
I didn't qualify the first time. Um, I got last place in in um, the, the 100 and 200 at the trials in 2012, and I, I wasn't good enough to make the team. And that was a pretty devastating, you know, feeling and experience and just so many uncertainties after that of do I continue? Am I good enough? Do I go back to triathlon? And, um, and yeah, but uh, just that was my door into the Paralympics. After I graduate, graduated from UCLA, I decided that I would go and do the normal thing. Like you've gotten a world-class education, now go get yourself a real job. And so I did, I went and worked for a medical device company and um, I was still training, but just not like real sure or set on going for another games or, you know, was I good enough? Did I have what it takes to do that? Um, but, you know, had to have put a roof over my head and and whatnot. And, and after UCLA, I was like, there's no way I'm going back to Michigan or going back home. So I had to get a job to stay out here in California. <laughs> and so I did. And and um, it was a great job. You know, I worked in um, a corporate for doing digital media and marketing. Um, and I would train, you know, before work or after work. And then by year three or year four, I really, I, I realized that I, I needed to go all in, like this working all day, you know, um, and then training before and after, like, wasn't going to get me to the Paralympics. And so I did the bold, crazy thing of saying at that time, I, uh, there was a coach at the Olympic Training Center who basically said, I'll train you like a world-class athlete. I'll get you on the Rio team. If you can get yourself down here to San Diego and um, find a place to live, like happy to work with you. And so um, I did. I packed up my car and um, moved myself down to San Diego and lived on a friend's couch for a few months, then moved to a different friend's spare room and and um, I had hardly any money saved, but that was the only way I could make it work. And um, I did that for six months. And it was a pretty crazy time when I look at it. Like, I think some of us underestimate, like, the ability to suffer and to struggle that much for a dream. And most people are not willing to go to those lows. Right. And I mean, I was eating um, not the athlete diet here. I was eating, like living off of ramen noodles, like PB&J, because it was super cheap. <laughs> and um, anyways, uh, or that instant cup, you know, ramen noodles where you put water and you put it in a microwave and there you had a meal. And so that was just so wild. And, and, I, and in that time, though, of sort of making that sacrifice of giving up everything, you know, this great job. I had a nice apartment. I had a nice car at that time for the company and to give up all of that and, and, you know, basically, you know, be poor and have nothing um, was pretty, pretty difficult. And uh, luckily in that time, just that dedication of working with this coach of being able to train you know, five to seven hours a day, six days a week, I went from like 28th in the world to top five 
and um you know from not being on the map to like being on the map and making the world championship team and and winning my first US national championships and just um it was incredible It wasn't long before a big shoe company came in to sponsor Scout her financial worries were on hold her good form qualified her for the US Paralympic team in the T42 long jump and the 100 metres for Rio 2016. It was a dream come true, but the emotional journey Scout had been on to get to that moment and took its toll. I say the whole experience was just super emotional. It was like a whirlwind. And, and you know, for me to ex- experience a life dream, to have it come true, of competing at the Paralympics. And, you know, there were so many times, whether it was on the plane or the first time I stepped onto that track, that I thought about my journey and all the things that I had been through to get to um, this place. The day that my 100 meter race came, as they were walking us to the 100 meter start line, I remember like tears were just started to stream down my face. And here I'm like supposed to get ready for like the biggest race of my life. And I just have these tears down. But it was not of sadness. It was just of such pride, of gratitude for everybody that's helped me on this journey and in this life to to see this moment. And just that like, I can't believe this is happening. Like a girl from the streets of China, you know, that was, um, had lost her life so tragically and grew up in an orphanage is here. And from a small town in Northern Michigan, you know, is here competing at the biggest stage in the world. And it was just incredible. It was, I was so happy, so grateful and humbled to represent not only my country, but, you know, pride in being Asian. You know, this is um, in in um, mainstream sports. Um, not many Asians are represented, you know, in terms of being a professional athlete. And I just had such pride in of hoping that, you know, some young girl or boy is going to see this and have this dream of like, I can do that too. And so it was incredible. And obviously the performance wasn't what I had hoped or dreamed of, but it was such a great experience. I learned so much from going through that, of having that underneath my belt of, you know, knowing what that pressure feels like to compete in a stadium that large and of so many cameras and just, you know, it was unlike any experience I had uh, before. And so I learned so, so much um, from that experience that I know is going to help me next year. One thing that I thought was super amazing, though, after Rio is that you decided to go back to the orphanage and and take a visit there. Uh, What kind of motivated that and uh, how was that? That must have if, if Rio was emotional. Um, how was the emotions there, right? Ah, oh, yeah. I think I was not quite ready for such these 
like whirlwind roller coaster experiences happening like back to back. I left to get on a plane to go to China uh, five days after my 100 meter race in Rio. <laughs> like so wild. But um, it was, I think I was just not sure of how this experience was going to go leading up to it. I'm not, there was never in anger or bitterness, but I definitely felt a lot of um, negativity, of pain, of um, heartbreak, of just immense loss, and even a bit of resentment of my experiences. And so I just didn't really know how I was going to like reconcile all that when I got there. But one of the things that I told myself is that, you know, we were given a day where we could be there and interact with the kids and we were allowed to bring gifts. And so I chose to bring sports equipment, so like basketball and soccer and jump ropes and, of course, toys and candy. Um, because I remember growing up in this orphanage, like I didn't have any of that. Right. Like I never had candy or never had toys or treats and like no sports, certainly. And so um, we brought that and I, I and I just told myself I was going to spend the day like not dwelling on my experiences or how I felt, but just of giving as much love and as much hope and light to these kids. Because, you know, growing up in that environment, you know, nobody ever told me that I had anything of worth or value or that I was loved or um or even the simple act of giving a child a hug like those were not things that i had growing up and so i just said i was going to do as much of that and introduce them to these different sports if i could and just like be present with them and it's something beautiful happened in that experience and in that process is like i felt myself like healing just from doing that of having this time in this moment with these children and um and just like really inspired by what i want to do in this world of bringing sport and activity to um parts of the world that have never been able to have access to it i i didn't cry at all that day but the day at, right after i left in the days and weeks and months after i cried so many tears and not all sadness but just of like you know having come full circle and all these memories of my childhood coming back up. But what I learned and, and really the lesson from that was that I think many of us go through experiences or challenges or things that are heartbreaking and difficult um, and we stay stuck at those places, right? A, um, a place of loss, of grief, of pain, of heartache. and we never leave. We're parked there and before you know it, 10, 20 years, you know, whatever, all these years have passed. We don't realize that we are being held down by that place, right? And for me, this orphanage had been a place that had broken me as a young girl and devastated me. And it wasn't until I was able to face the people, the place that had broken me, that I was able to heal and to leave that parked place that I had been at forever. 
And so, um, you know, it's just such a great challenge that in life that whatever is holding you back from realizing your full potential, from being the best version of yourself, you know, until you're able to confront it and to deal with it and, and willing to do the hard work, you're not going to exit that parked place. And so it was a great moment for me that um, of work that I had to do in my life to to you know, leave that, that place. And, um, and of course, it's amazing how things happen in life because a lot of incredible things have really happened in the last four years. And I attribute all of that um, from being able to experience this place of healing and, and going back to the orphanage. Would you change anything in your life if you were given the chance to live it again? Gosh, um, you know, I, by no means am I a uh, perfect human being. There are things that, you know, of course, I I wish I could do over again or or maybe handle things differently. But in terms of the things that have happened to me and the things that I have had no control over, um, I wouldn't change any of that. And, you know, a lot of people ask, like, if you could have your light back or, you know, would you? Or if you um, were able to grow up here in America, could would you? And and I say I wouldn't change any of that. You know, any of um, the parts of my story that have made me me, I wouldn't go back or change because I am as strong and as courageous and bold and brave as I am today because of those experiences. And I think that um, it, it is really a skill set to be able to take the darkest seasons and parts, the most heartbreaking aspects of your journey and learn to use that for good. And for me, I hadn't really figured that out. Like I didn't see these things as positives, right? You know, you don't have to have gone through as crazy of a story or journey as mine um, to experience hardship or challenges. And it's really been neat to see how all of that has been used for such good. Like, and that's what I want people to know that whatever adversity, whatever things that make you different, um, even the greatest pain and loss in your life can be your greatest gift to love, to serve, and to help others. And that's been, I think, the beauty of all of this is that I've really seen that, that, that you have that hope, you know, and hearing this to keep going, to move forward, to push through. And I want to be transparent that, you know, so many people read my story or hear this and they just, you know, think of it as like the Cinderella story or of all the success. And the truth is that before all of that, there has been many, many dark lows, many seasons of um, darkness, you know, in particular after going back to the orphanage and Rio, I had to spend a lot of time um, getting help and working through all of these traumatic events that had happened in my life. And um, there was a many, there was a, a gap there of a couple of years that I was in this incredible low that I did not know if I was going to be able to get past this hurt and this pain. And 
the abuse that I went through in the orphanage and how I was going to be able to really like work through some of that, you know? And so, um, and that's hard. And I'm not here to say that doing that kind of work is easy. Um, I think working on yourself is the hardest job there is, but it's also the most important work that you can do in your life um, is, is working through those things. And so, you know, I just want to be very real about that too, that it's hard to, to work through that stuff. It is hard to face the things that have broken you. And I'm not here to sugarcoat it and just act like, oh, I experienced success and therefore it made it all easier or better. It doesn't. Um, and the work is just as hard. And so no amount of success of winning of any titles um, can mask uh, the very real things that you feel um, from from your life experiences. I think one of the lessons from from that we need to learn at the moment is how to cope with adversity. Like, what would be your your advice, Scout, uh, in this time where everyone's facing some kind of adversity? One of the things that I've been doing, and you know, I used to do it a lot more when I was younger, and kind of got away because you know, life and being busy and and having demands and and expectations but um during this uh rona is what i call it rona time i've actually started journaling again because i want to be able to remember and to look back on this chapter this period of time and kind of remember like my thoughts or what i was doing or how i got myself through each day and one of the things that I do every day um, when I wake up is, you know, I get out my journal here and I write in something. Uh, I make a list of things that I'm grateful for or thankful for. And I think that's really important because in these times, it's easy to allow fear, um, to allow Stress, a negativity to take over your days because so much of that is out there and the majority of us are still very very privileged and still so lucky um, if you have a roof over your head and you have food you are luckier than most people you know just those simple basics and so I just try to make a list of things that I'm grateful for. Even if it's the same thing you write down every day, do it anyways. Just the act and the practice of having that gratitude, um, it, you know, for me, helps me to remind myself of, like, there is such good and there's such positivity. And um, even just, you know, for me, having connections, like, I have FaceTimed people more than I ever have in my life. <laughs> probably annoying the heck out of some of my friends and my coach and teammates, but just to connect and check in with people has been so valuable. But I really take, um, I, or I really challenge people to take this time. You know, people have so much time right now, more time than they've probably ever had to, you know, not only 
do things that you enjoy. Like I've learned to, I've been taking up a little bit of cooking and trying to eat healthy and not let myself go during this time. And I'm enjoying that of like really trying to um, make things at home and, and whatnot. But um, also think of ways that you can encourage or help somebody else, especially somebody that has lost their job or, um, you know, here in San Diego, we have a, a bit of a homeless population or, you know, just going to go and volunteer for an organization, spending time doing that, um, or even just encouraging somebody that you know is struggling. And and we also have to recognize that in people's physical health in this time is super important, but their mental health is just as vulnerable as their physical health during this time right and we are seeing peaks of people struggling with anxiety and depression and having certain thoughts because they feel they've lost everything or the world is coming to an end and i think it's just as important to check in on people's mental health as it is on their physical health and asking how are you doing what are you thinking of like what's your state that you're in and um so that's what I would encourage people to, you know, do as much moving as you can. I live in a really small, small apartment. And so, like, I'm having to move my furniture around just to have space to, like, do some basic core body work, ex body weight exercises. Um, and most importantly, just to fill your spirit, your mind, your thoughts with positive thoughts and people. I think that's really important in a time like this. I've had to shut down um, getting on or watching too much TV, my screen time, or being on Twitter or Instagram too much because you can easily go on there and just feel so overwhelmed and depressed. And so, like, check in, be informed, but don't live on those places all day because otherwise it can just drive you crazy. So the most important thing is, though, just to, to have – positive thoughts and write those down and, and just to be grateful for whatever you have. And and I would say, and I wrote this on a post that even the darkest of times is always an opportunity to grow, to serve and to love. And I truly believe this is such a time for that. And it can be such a reveal of who we are um, as humans if we're able to do that. Uh, what are your thoughts about Tokyo in 2021 well uh i i believe this from the start and even when weeks ago the games was looking like it wasn't going to happen i said to myself this is not a dream that is being derailed or canceled this is just a dream that's going to be delayed and i've just had that mindset um but gosh i'm still so hungry like when um, we sat down the day after the, the announcement came of the postponement, we sat down with my coach and, and other teammates and he kind of asked, well, you know, what do you guys want to do in this time? Like, do some of you need or want to take some time off or whatnot? And of course, I'm just crazy and I don't sit still very well. And so I'm like, no, I'm not, I don't want to take time off. Like, let's go, you know. But I'm also somebody that just sport and movement to be my anchor it's sort of the thing that keeps me sane and going and so and and motivated you know not just from a physical standpoint but from 
a mental, you know, standpoint also. And so trust me, just because it's, you know, a year and several months away, like I'm not going to be taking time off or like um, eating bonbons on my couch. Like I'm going to still be training. We're still working out, still running pretty much every day. And I love that. And so I'm hungry. I feel like this is going to be such a great opportunity. Um, in particular, a great moment for the Paralympics. And even more so maybe than the Olympics, because we are seeing this incredible shift and this incredible um, movement that's happening with the Paralympics, of uh, being able to change perceptions around the world of people with disabilities. And I really felt like the Tokyo Games was such a great stage and an opportunity to do that. And so I'm so excited. I think that it's going to be an incredible Games. It's going to be spectacular. I don't think it's going to be any less um, amazing because it's a year later. I think it's going to have that same um, awe-inspiring experience and moment for viewers and for the athletes. and. So I'm just so pumped. Like, I know they're going to put on a spectacular games. I've never spent real time in Tokyo, so I'm really excited about that. I'm so excited uh, about the game. And, um, you know, it's a year later, but not any less incredible. The performances will not be disappointing in any way. <laughs> Scout, I feel invigorated. Are you ready to run through a brick wall? A bit of an emotional wreck. You know, I, I am I am grateful for you uh, being so open and honest. Thank you so much for having me and for taking the time to do this and shining light on this. It means an awful lot. Olympic, Olympic Channel, Channel Podcast. What? a woman and what a story a huge thanks to scout for taking the time out to speak to us that was definitely an interview that could have gone on for about two days please follow scout she's on instagram she's just scout bassett the olympic channel is on all social medias that's just olympic channel and i am at eddie knowles with an i and an e another amazing american woman who gave us some incredible calm advice was karate athlete Sakuru Kokumai. Here's a clip from that interview. It's so simple, yeah? Never give up. I don't know, it's the most simple words, words, but it has so much meanings to it. That mentality has really gotten me through these years of all the struggles and sacrifices, you know? It's easy to give up. It's easy to be like, okay, it didn't work my way. Oh, well. You know, it's so easy to do that and find an ex not an excuse but it's always easy to do that you know that spirit itself is part of karate throughout my journey and it is helping me now go and check that out right now if you haven't already link in the episode description if it's so far slipped your mind to give us a five-star review on the podcast app then it would be fantastic if you could go and do that right now okay that's it for now see you very soon think like an olympian